Thank you, Brian. My name is Mark, an alcoholic. I've been sober by the grace of God, a good sponsor, and working the steps since March 20th, 1977. First off, I want to thank the committee for having me come up and do this. I think it's an honor and a privilege to be able to ask to share in, in any meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, or Al-Anon, for that matter. Um... Uh, <clears throat> I want to thank Scott, especially, and Brian and his wife, Trish. They've been wonderful hosts and hostesses. I really appreciate the fruit basket. We're down to two pieces of fruit now. I'm going to be real regular when I get back to Lincoln. <laughs> I especially enjoyed my wife's talk. And I, I enjoyed the other talks, too. I enjoyed Jeff's talk on the, on the steps and... Uh, I enjoyed Ron's talk last night. I liked the workshop this afternoon. And, of course, uh, Loretta's talk on Al-Anon. I love Al-Anon talks. Uh, sometimes you go to functions, and when the Al-Anon gets up and talks, the room clears out. It's like I don't know if we alcoholics feel threatened by that or not. And where I'm from, sadly, there's a lot of sick Al-Anon jokes. And I don't know why they would want to do that, because these programs saved our lives. Why would they? I'm very proud of my wife's membership in Al-Anon, because we had to learn early on that if we didn't grow together spiritually, we, we would grow apart. I think that's very important, especially in an alcoholic marriage. My ho- My home group's the primary purpose group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet Monday nights at 8 o'clock at 4600 Valley Road on the fourth floor. I'll be there Monday no matter what, because I'm a runner and a quitter. I broke the quitting habit at the home group. When I was drinking, I'd get established in the community. I'd get a good job. I'd do okay for a while. Then I'd pick up that first drink. You know the rest of the story. It wasn't too long before I was fired from my job in jail or both. And rather than face my problem head-on and the humiliation, it's easier for me to just pack up the wife and kids in the middle of the night and head out for greener pastures. That's called a geographical cure, and we did it over and over and over again. The first seven years we were married, we moved 13 times, always one step ahead of trouble. After I got sober, that behavior didn't change overnight. In the first few years as, as an AA, I think I worked 20 different jobs. I just couldn't seem to drop anchor anywhere. As far as the meetings themselves were concerned, it was pretty much the same story. I'd get involved in a group, I'd do okay for a while, and somebody at the group would say something or hurt my feelings. <laughs> I'm sensitive, don't you know? I'd think, how dare they? You know, I'm doing all these good deeds, nobody appreciates me, I'll find a group where they treat me right. I'd move to another group. The problem with that mentality is that the world gets smaller and smaller, and eventually, you run out of groups to go to, especially in 1977. Well, finally, my sponsor at the time had to sit me down and say, Mark, you need to grow where you're planted. He said, it's been my experience, based on observation, that people that jump from group to group to group or from sponsor to sponsor to sponsor usually make their last jump out of AA. I've been at my home group now 16 years. My home group is not the best group in AA. It's not even in the top 10 but it's my home group. Sigmund Freud once made the remark that the sign of emotional maturity is the ability to form lasting relationships. I believe I've done that at the home group. 
There's a bunch of men there that I know more intimately than their own mothers. Never seen my darker side, defects and all. These are the guys that were there for me when my daughter was sick. They were there for me when my father died. They helped me when my mother's house burned down, and they were there to help me when I had to move my mother into the nursing home. These guys are the salt of the earth, and I love them dearly. I hope you love the people in your home group dearly, too, because if we don't stick together in this thing as a cohesive unit, we're going to die separately, apart, and alone, and that is a frightening proposition for me. I drank alcoholically for 17 years. I was 35 years old when I got here. I'd been to AA already. I was your perennial slipper. I was in and out of this thing like a yo-yo. My story is adjusting to a lesser, lesser standard of living. I grew up with the best of everything. My parents were very successful, affluent people. My dad was a career diplomat, so we traveled a lot. I mean, we lived at various times in Turkey, France, Greece, West Africa. I was raised by servants, if you can believe that. I was educated in private boarding schools in Europe. By the time I was a teenager, I could speak several foreign languages, some of them fluently. If it sounds like I was a worldly kid, nothing could be further from the truth. I led a very naive, sheltered existence. Part of my dad's job as a diplomat was to entertain foreign dignitaries, so he always kept a well-stocked bar. It never entered my mind to pick up a drink. My focus was on books and reading. This was in an era before television. It wasn't uncommon for me to read a book in one sitting. Back then, people like me were called bookworms. Nowadays, I'd be known as a nerd or a geek. As a shy, introverted kid, I wore glasses. I had very few social skills. I thought about girls constantly, but I was terrified of the opposite sex. I was an alcoholic waiting to happen. In 1959, we were living in Lagos, Nigeria, in West Africa. Nigeria was a crown colony of the British Empire, and they were on the eve of their independence from England. In the 50s, the sun was sitting on a British Empire, and a Union Jack was coming down, and there was a lot of partying going on. Imagine in 1776, in this country, there was a few parties thrown. My parents had been invited to one such party as a very prestigious white tie, formal attire type function. You know, the guest list read like something out of who's who of famous people. There were senators and statesmen from the United States. The premier of Ghana was there, the premier of France. There was Harvard professors, Rhodes scholars. Nelson Rockefeller and his wife, Happy, were, were in attendance, and I say that For one reason and one reason only, his name appears in A.A. Comes of Age. I hadn't been invited. I mean, why would I be invited? I was a shy, pimply-faced kid. (laughs) But at the last minute, my father got called out of town on business, and my mother needed an escort. And she figured, what the hell, a kid's 17? We'll slap a tuxedo on him, and he'll fill the bill. So at 17, I was thrust into an adult situation I was ill-prepared to handle. Why is it we alcoholics can remember... Our first drink with such clarity. I can't tell you anything about my first sexual experience. (laughs) All I know about that is I woke up one morning, I was middle-aged, and I had a house full of kids. (laughs) That first night drinking's like it was yesterday, and even though that's been 43 years ago. It was outdoors under the tropical night. The palm trees were swaying in the breeze. The orchestra was playing. The moon was rising over the lagoon. There's native stewards milling about with these huge silver trays filled with mixed drinks. And on a whim, I reached over and I picked up a mixed drink. 
Might have been a Manhattan, might have been a martini. It certainly wasn't that slop I ended up drinking 17 years later. <laughs> Those of you who are alcoholic will understand what I'm about to describe. Within moments of ingesting that alcohol, suddenly this hostile, threatening adult environment became warm and hospitable. I remember thinking to myself, this isn't so bad. I sauntered over to a group of people that were having an intellectual conversation about American literature, and I joined the conversation. <laughs> I even ventured an opinion or two. After a few more drinks, I had my arm draped over the shoulder of a Harvard professor, <laughs> and we were chatting amicably about Faulkner and Hemingway. <laughs> I didn't know squat about Faulkner and Hemingway, <laughs> but alcohol allowed me to fake it till I could make it. Later that evening, I made a complete ass of myself. In the 50s, there was an obsession with um, large-bosomed women. This was the era of Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield, and cleavage was in. And there was a lot of low-cut evening gowns at this party, and I remember thinking it'd be cute to drop olives down cleavage. I about caused an international incident. Luckily, we got out of there before I did any real damage. We got back to our quarters. I got deathly sick, and I threw up in my mosquito netting. <laughs> the next morning, the servants came in, cleaned that mess up, and told my mother I'd probably picked up some tropical germ. So, already, somebody was covering for me. <laughs> now, I've just described in somewhat lurid detail my first drunk. I want to briefly describe my wife's one and only drunk. My wife, Zella, is a member of the loyal opposition Al-Anon. <laughs> When we'd been married about six months, she reluctantly consented to drink with me. I say reluctantly. My wife grew up as a Southern Baptist. They don't drink. She couldn't understand my fascination with alcohol. I said, well, you wouldn't be so critical of it if you'd give it a try. I gave her the old contempt prior investigation line. <laughs> and she fell for it. Folks, there's some people that had ought to drink. And my wife's certainly one of those people. She went through the entire disease of alcoholism on half a can of Colt 45. <laughs> it was a disgusting display, I'm here to tell you. She became convivial, she became jovial, she got talkative, she got boisterous, she got romantic. Then she got melancholy. She got morose. She got on a crying jag. She fell down, threw up, chipped her tooth, and crawled, literally crawled into the bedroom pulled the sheets overhead, slept it off, woke up the next morning with a terrific hangover and said, I'll never, ever drink again. My wife has 36 years of sobriety. <laughs> so what, pray tell, is the difference between someone like my wife, an earth person, and someone like me, an alcoholic? The first night out, I made a fool of myself and got sick. My wife's first night out, she made a fool of herself and got sick. The difference, I think, is my wife says, I don't want the pain and suffering that goes with doing this. And I said to myself, I can't wait to try it again. And therein lies the difference. After that first drunk, I returned to the United States. I entered the University of Kansas at Lawrence. I was not a success as a college student. I didn't have the discipline or the maturity it took to attend class. I soon found myself on academic probation. Rather than face the humiliation of that experience, it's easier for me to just withdraw from college, take my funds out of the bank, go down to Florida, lay out in the sun, 
drink beer on a false ID card. It gets a little lonely out there on the beach when all your friends are back in class. So I went over to New Orleans and I hung out on Bourbon Street, but that got old in a hurry. Then I decided I'd visit the Deep South and across the border into Mississippi. That was the first of many mistakes I've made in my life. <laughs> One night as I was approaching the town of Pascagoula, Mississippi, as you come into town, there's a toll bridge. I'd been drinking beer all afternoon, and my mind told me I didn't have to pay the toll. So I ran through the toll bridge without paying. What I learned from that experience is that the judges in Mississippi don't like Northerners. His exact words were, boy, you're in a heap of trouble. This judge gave me some options. The first option was that I could go to the penal farm in Picayune County, Mississippi for a period of up to six months. And the second option was I could enlist in some branch of the armed services. And I opted for the Navy. The Navy was a custom fit for me. I loved the Navy. I loved the Navy then. I love the Navy now. I found people in the Navy just like myself, people that like to party. When I was in the Navy, not only was drinking acceptable, it was expected. Our officers and our senior NCOs were World War II veterans. They had only one thing on their mind. That was to get their 20 years in and retire. They didn't want to be troubled with a lot of bureaucratic nonsense. So if a young sailor was a bit of a nuisance, Sometimes it's easier just to transfer the nuisance to somebody else's command rather than to deal with the problem. So I transferred a lot. <laughs> I served in the military at a time when it was very unpopular to be in the military. These were the turbulent 60s, and I'm so very grateful I got to do that. But I finished my first enlistment, I finished my first enlistment up, and I re-enlisted. I was well on my way to a 20-year career. However, somewhere toward the end of my second enlistment, I started having health problems. And I was ultimately retired early on a service-connected disability. I was always very proud of the fact that my medical condition had nothing to do with my drinking. <laughs> However, knowing what I know now about alcoholism and how it affects every aspect of a person's physical and mental well-being, for me to say that alcohol played no role in my disability would be a major understatement. I met my future bride when, we were on when I was on disability from the service. We met at a swimming pool in Kansas, and she was impressed by the fact that I'd traveled all over the world and I could speak these foreign languages. I'd write her love letters in French, and she'd get all giddy. <laughs> her parents weren't that impressed with me. For one, I was considerably older than their daughter, and I shook a lot. And they'd say things like, well, why does your boyfriend shake so much? And my wife would say, well, he's nervous from the service. And it became patriotic for me to be screwed up. <laughs> We were to be married on a Saturday morning in April, and on Thursday night I went out drinking with my buddies in Salina, Kansas, and I must have overshot the mark, because I went into one of the worst blackouts I've ever had before since. I came to in a strange hospital, not knowing how I'd gotten there. I knew it was a mental hospital, because there's no handles on the door. <laughs> I remember I went over to the nurse's station, and I said, where am I? And she says, you're in the Topeka Veterans Hospital. You've been committed. And I said, well... <laughs> That's fine and dandy. I said, but I'm, I'm getting married Saturday morning. I have to get out of here. And she says, save your breath. That was eight days ago. And I hadn't remembered. I turned to another patient standing there in his paper slippers, and I said, you, sir, how long have you been here? And he said, I've been here since 1942. <laughs> I got that sinking feeling. You know that sinking feeling? I knew then and there I had to escape. Pay attention, folks. This is very important. The way to escape from a mental hospital is 
you gain the trust of the staff. Once you gain their trust, they quit watching you. And I did just that. I became a model patient. I said, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, to the nurses. I went to their crummy little group therapy sessions, and I participated. I went to their crummy little occupational therapy classes, and I made moccasins and belts and those crummy little clay ash trays. A couple times I had a chance to escape, but I didn't. I made damn sure they were aware of that fact. Once when some of my fellow patients were going to make a break for it, I snitched them off. I became a narc. I was a darling of the ward. Then one night when we were on our way across the hospital compound, going to the movie theater as a group, I made my move. I fell to the rear of the formation. When they went around a corner in one direction, I darted off in another. And I hid out in the women's restroom in one of the stalls. When the coast was clear, I snuck out. I grabbed a coat hanger. I jimmied open a window. I crawled out on the ledge of the hospital. I dropped to the ground 15 feet below. And I was off and running in the streets of Topeka, Kansas. God damn, I get excited talking about it now. <laughs> you have to understand the geography of the situation. On the left-hand side of the Topeka Veterans Hospital is the Kansas Neurological Institute. That's a state mental hospital. On the right-hand side of the Topeka Veterans Hospital is the Menninger Foundation. That's the Rolls-Royce of nuthouses. This is a heavily patrolled area. I'm out on a highway in my PJs with my thumb out. <laughs> the first car to come along was a major from Forbes Air Base. He pulled up alongside me. He rolled his window down and said, can I help you? I said, yes, I'm an employee at the Veterans Hospital. I said, my car won't start. Would you give me a lift? And he said, sure, hop in. <laughs> We're rolling down the road there. He looks over at my pajamas and he says, say, uh, what's that outfit you got on? Stencil across the front of my pajama tops were the wor words of Veterans Administration, Neuropsychiatric Unit, Topeka, Kansas. Well, I said, oh, I said, I'm an intern at the VA hospital. I said, I work on the psych ward. He said, oh, I've heard a lot about that place. He says, there's a lot of sick people there. I said, indeed there are. I said, and not only that, I said, they're always trying to escape. He let me off in an intersection about three miles down the road. I hoofed it the rest of the way in my future brother-in-law's house. I got him and his wife up from the supper table. They were willing to drive me 200 miles north into the central part of the state where I rendezvoused with my future bride around 3 o'clock in the morning. She was willing to forgive and forget the fact I hadn't shown up for my first wedding. <laughs> she packed a suitcase, borrowed $25 from her mother, grabbed the marriage license, which had expired by now, and we hid out in the cornfields until dawn. When the coast was clear, we snuck into town. We found a judge who was willing to marry us on an expired license, and we began our married life together. My new bride made a couple phone calls to the Veterans Administration, and they were willing to drop the commitment, provided my new bride would be responsible for me. So I was on my best behavior. Our first home as a, as a married couple was in Fort Madison, Iowa, and for six months I did not drink. In that period of time, my wife became pregnant. One night I decided to have a beer, and the next thing you know, she's bailing me out of jail for fighting with the police. Well, we couldn't stand for that, so we moved to Council Bluffs, Iowa. I got my feet firmly planted on the ground in Council Bluffs. I got a good job across the river in Omaha. My son Bruce was born. Things were going good, but I got to fantasizing. One of my fantasies was about taking Dr. Eric Hoffer's miraculous niacin cure up in Canada. So next thing you know, I convinced my wife to drop everything and go with me up to Moose Jaw, Canada, 
which is north of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. That didn't pan out, so we returned to the States and we settled in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. While we were living in Eau Claire, my daughter Brianna was born. A year later, I had a quote-unquote nervous breakdown. In those days, the way they treated a nervous breakdown was with mega doses of electric shock treatment. And like she explained, those shock treatments left me dazed, confused, disoriented. And so I was placed in what they call a sheltered workshop, very similar to an adult daycare center, except you work for a living, under close scrutiny, I might add. And I did that for a year until I could figure out who I was and where I was. And then I was released and we returned to Kansas and we settled on a little farm south of Haddam, Kansas. Not for the purpose of farming, but to watch a farmer's machinery. He says, you can stay here for free. All I ask is you keep an eye on the property. It seemed like a good deal to me because we were living on, like she said, $157 a month disability and food stamps. This was the winter of our discontent. You know, this house was a little more than a shack. The wind blew through cracks in the wall. There's water to the top steps of the basement. There's an odor of gas in the air constantly, and the rodent problem is out of control. I mean, there was rats and mice everywhere, so we put the kids in bed between us for their own protection. I could no longer afford to buy booze, so I'd take my food stamps, and I'd go into town. I'd get Welch's grape juice, sugar, and yeast, and I'd make balloon wine. We were so broke, I couldn't afford to buy the balloons, so I'd go to the Republic Family Planning Clinic and get condoms. <laughs> the lady at the family planning clinic said to me one day, she says, you know, you sure come in here a lot for birth control. She says, you don't look sexually active. <laughs> and I didn't. I had a four-day growth of beard, dirty, greasy clothes on, long, greasy string of hair. My teeth were rotted out. I had a beer belly. I mean, I was no Tom Cruise. <laughs> if I drink a gallon of wine a day, I brew a gallon of wine a day, that wine, combined with those antidepressant pills that I was getting in the mail from the Veterans Administration, created kind of a sedative effect. So I spent a lot of time zonked on the couch. My wife always kidded me and said I never got a DWI because you can't get a DWI driving a couch. <laughs> she was not coping with my drinking very well. Her solution to my drinking was to overeat. I'd go on a running drunk, she'd eat a gallon of ice cream or a loaf of bread, and she became overweight. And she didn't like that, so she went to her doctor and got some little heart-shaped diet pills to help her lose the weight. And lose the weight she did. But it speeded her metabolism up. So picture this. Dad's comatose on the couch. But mom's a beehive of activity. I mean, she is whacking weeds at 4 o'clock in the morning, blowing dust out of keyholes, waxing the driveway, painting the ceiling. Our kids became genuinely neurotic. In the midst of all this chaos, I had resurrected a television set from the city dump in Haddam, Kansas, and on a clear night, with the help of an antenna made out of a coat hanger, I was able to pull in one TV channel. One night after the family had gone to bed for evening, I remained awake, and I was watching the late movie, and the movie The Days of Wine and Roses came on. It's a very poignant story about a family's descent into the disease of alcoholism. There's a particular scene there where the hero, Joe Clay, played by Jack Lemon, breaks into a liquor store and grabs a bottle of booze and runs off in the night, and I'd done that very thing. The thought occurred to me, my God, I must be an alcoholic. Now, this didn't come as a surprise to anybody else. Counselors and therapists had been hinting at this for years. But it's the first time I gave it any credibility. I became just riveted to that television set. In the final scene of the movie, the heroine, Kristen, played by Lee Remick, 
abandons her husband and her little girl in order to return to drinking. It's a sad ending. In a final scene, she's going down a hill into the darkness. You know, the neon lights are flashing. The fog's coming in over the bay. The Henry Mancini Orchestra is playing in the background. The tears were rolling down my face. I turned off the television set, and I went into the bedroom, and I woke my wife up, and I said, Honey, I'm an alcoholic, and I need to quit drinking. And she said, Yes, dear, I know. Now come to bed. She wasn't impressed. I mean, why would she be? She'd heard hollow, empty promises in the past. Three weeks prior to that, I'd been in court on some minor infraction, and the judge had said to me, Why'd you do what you did? I said, Well, I'm an alcoholic, Your Honor. It's like I'm not at fault. I seem to have been born that way. I used alcoholism as a cop-out, as an excuse. But this night I was sincere. And I went into the kitchen. There was all those gallons of wine out there on the cabinet, and I emptied them out, gallon by gallon by gallon. When I got to the final gallon, I knew I had to make a clean sweep of it, so I marched into the bathroom and opened up the medicine cabinet. Any prescription in there with a mood-altering flavor I destroyed. Tranquilizers, sleeping pills, antidepressants. I flushed them all. Then I went in and laid down with my wife, and I went to sleep, and I slept like a baby. I woke up the next morning refreshed. The thought came to me, this is easy. I can do this. But as the day wore on, I got edgier and edgier and edgier. Around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I started getting a ringing in my ears, kind of a humming sound. And by 5 o'clock, I was hallucinating big time. I remember I looked over at my wife, and it appeared to me that she had a green caterpillar slithering out of her left nostril. <laughs> I recoiled in horror. I looked back, she had green caterpillars coming out of her eye sockets and her ears. I screamed in terror. I looked around the room, there's green caterpillars everywhere, hundreds of them, thousands of them, millions of them. They were coming at me, and they were attaching themselves to my extremities, and I was trying to knock them loose. I looked down at my chest. My God, I had barbed wire stretched around my chest, and it was choking my breath off. So I grabbed that barbed wire with both hands and gave it a yank. I ripped my shirt. I fell to the ground kicking and screaming. I mean, it was a terror of the damned, and it went on all night long. Finally, around sunrise, my wife says, that's it. You're going to the hospital. She loaded me in a car and drove me 40 miles into Concordia, Kansas, and admitted me to the Catholic hospital there. The nuns took a look at me, gave me a shot of Valium, and put me to bed. That evening, one of the sisters came in with my supper tray. And in my delirium, I didn't see a nun standing there. I saw a member of the Ku Klux Klan. This is back when the nuns wore the white habit, and I attacked the nun with a drinking glass. And the nun just beat the shit out of me. She summoned some of her nun buddies in, and they wrestled me into bed and strapped me down. There's a lot of nonsense that night, I'll tell you. I like to call them the little sisters of Kung Fu. As a result of that violent outburst, my wife was called into the hospital administrator's office. He says, lady, this is a small-town Catholic hospital. He says, we do appendicitis here. We do hernias. We do ingrown toenails. We do deliveries, but we don't do crazy people. He says, your husband is a chronic alcoholic. He's suffering from the delirium tremens or the DTs. He says, if he's to remain here for any period of time, he said, somebody has to be with him around the clock or he'll hurt himself or somebody else. He says, our nuns aren't equipped to handle that sort of thing. And my wife says, well, what am I supposed to do? I've got two little kids at home. He said, I realize that. He says, we've had this happen in the past. He says, there is an organization called Alcoholics Anonymous. They will come and sit with your husband while he's going through this. He says, but we have to have your permission to call him. So my wife gave permission. I am so very grateful to the God of my understanding 
that I got the traditional 12-step call. The two gentlemen that showed up in my hospital room the next morning had obviously read chapter 7 of our big book because they did not condemn, lecture, or moralize, nor did they talk down to me from some sort of spiritual hilltop. They simply shared their experience, their strength, and their hope. That's called the language of the heart. Had they wagged their finger in my face, threatened or scolded me, I don't think I'd be standing here today. One of these gentlemen was a banker. The other one owned a grocery store. And the banker would come in during the day, during business hours, and sit with me while my wife was home resting. The grocery store owner would come in after business hours and stay with me until bedtime. And they would share bits and pieces of their personal recovery experience with me. And I identified. I identified because they had done the things I had done. They had walked in my moccasins. They said something else that really got my attention. They said, when you get out of here, come to our group. We need you. My God, they needed me. Nobody needed me. People were saying, please leave our community. We don't need you here. There were two guys that needed me. I was flattered. I started going to AA on flattery alone. I wasn't impressed with AA in the beginning. It seemed like a lot of old people. Kind of like a boneyard. The old gal that opened up the meeting on Wednesday night would come shuffling in with an aluminum walker. One day at a time. Just one day at a time. I thought, yep, that's about all you got, you old Betty. <laughs> there was Harry. Harry had hemorrhoids, and he was very vocal about it. <laughs> Harry had one of those circular donut cushions that you inflate. He'd blow... Then there was Junior. Junior wore bib overalls, and there's nothing wrong with bib overalls, but Junior, God bless him, didn't wear any underwear. <laughs> and when he'd lean over, you could see God knows what. It seemed to me that everybody in this group chewed tobacco. Part of my initiation as a new guy in a group was to do the dishes. And these people would spit their tobacco juice in their porcelain cups. We didn't have styrofoam in those days. I had to clean that mess up. The best, though, was the guru of the group, the old-timer, our leader. This old boy wore dentures. He'd take his teeth out during the meeting, dip them in his coffee cup, put them back in his mouth, and they would say to me, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And I wasn't ready. I drink. And they'd say, well, before you drink, why didn't you call somebody? I didn't know who to call. Nobody at this group had a name. I mean, there was Lucky Lucy, Squirrely Jack, Harry the Horse and Junior. Try looking those up in the phone book. <laughs> Folks, I used my full name in an AA meeting. I don't think the 11th tradition was ever intended for us to be anonymous one from another. I mean, it's very specific. It says we're to be anonymous at the level of press, radio, television, and films. So I use my full name. I'm not saying you got to do that. I'm saying I do. They talked about big book, big book, big book. There was a constant chatter about the big book. I thought, this is a scam to sell literature. <laughs> I said, give me 10. I'll sell them. I didn't understand. They talked in riddles. They said things like, the guy that gets up the earliest in the morning has the most sobriety. I thought, yeah, I like that. You see, I could never sleep past 3.30. 4 o'clock in the morning, I had chronic insomnia. So for a brief period of time, I honestly believed I was the most sober person in the group. <laughs> and then I drank. And then I drank. And then I drank. 
Finally, one night, my wife came to me with an interesting proposition. She says, Mark, I think Alcoholics Anonymous will work for you. She says, but you're not making it on one meeting a week. Why don't we move to a large metropolitan community where they have a meeting every day? I thought, well, there's a novel idea. So the next morning, we loaded up the station wagon with all our worldly possessions. We put the kids in the back seat. We boarded a farmhouse up, and we headed north on Highway 81. We crossed the border into Nebraska. We were going someplace exciting, maybe Denver, maybe Chicago. We ended up in Lincoln, Nebraska. We ran out of money. We've never got out of town. That was 31 years ago, 32 years ago. A brief word about that farmhouse. You know, we no sooner got that farmhouse than it exploded. There'd always been an odor of gas and air, and that gas accumulated in that closed-in area, and it just blew up. And I think about that sometimes, because we could have been in there. I think God looks out after alcoholics and their families. Our last $30 went for prescription medicine for my wife, and suddenly we're homeless in a strange city. It's cold outside. You know, the kids are hungry. We don't have any money. We don't have any food. We don't have any shelter. We did the only thing we could do. We went to the city mission. And the mission was wonderful. They fed us. They clothed us. You know, they nursed my wife back to health. They took a whiff of me, and they said, you've been drinking, and I admitted it. I was kicked out of the mission. My wife and kids got their act together. My wife got a little job. She got a little apartment. And she became self-supporting through her own contributions. I continued to drink, and I'm not proud of that. Many of the night, the police would come to my wife's doorstep, and they'd say, Lady, we found your husband face down in the gutter in downtown Lincoln. He's suffering from hypothermia and pneumonia. He's up at the veterans' hospital. He's in bad shape. You better get up there because he may not make it. My wife would rush up to the VA hospital. I'd pull through, and I'd put on a burst of reform, and I'd stay dry dry in A&A six, eight, maybe even ten months. But I'd always return to drinking. There's a difference between dry and sober. Dry is an absence of alcohol. Sober is a presence, a presence of God, and there's a big difference. Finally, in 1977, I reached the proverbial jumping-off point that they talk about so eloquently in our big book. Or I couldn't imagine life with alcohol or without it, and I wish for the end, and I attempted suicide. If there's any newcomers here tonight and you're planning on doing that, let me tell you something. You're probably killing the wrong person. I am not the same guy tonight as I was 25 years ago. I don't bear any physical resemblance to that individual. But I went up to the VA hospital, and I found a doctor up there who was not familiar with my case, and I conned him into writing me a prescription for sleeping pills. I went home, and I took the whole bottle. I laid down to die, and I about got the job done. When I came out of my coma, I was in big trouble legally. In Nebraska, it's against the law to kill yourself. <laughs> the authorities take a dim view of suicide, and I was sent to an institution for an indefinite period of time. But in that institution, I was completely detoxed off of all alcohol and mind-sedating drugs. And when I was released from the institution, I was as clean as a whistle. And for the first time in years, I was able to understand what you people had been trying to tell me. Part of my release from the institution was contingent on me having an AA sponsor of their choice. Of their choice. Thank God. Had I been allowed to pick my own sponsor, I would have picked another loser like myself. The man they picked for me was a hard-hearted old bastard by the name of Paul Southard. Paul had gone to school for hard-hearted sponsors. <laughs> One of the first things Paul told me was, he says, Mark, you're going to have to get a job. Boy, I didn't want to hear that. So I patiently explained to Paul that I was on disability, and that wouldn't be possible. 
And Paul patiently explained to me that he didn't give a shit what I was on. <laughs> that if he were to sponsor me, I damn well better work for a living, otherwise I could go back to the cracker factory as far as he was concerned. So I said, fine, Paul, I'll get a job, I'll get a sales job. He said, no. He says, you don't need anything that'll puff up your ego. He says, I have a job for you. And Paul had some connections with the state of Nebraska, and he got me on at the State Department of Roads. It was hard physical work. But Paul knew at the end of a work day, I'd be so physically tired that it was all I could do would be to go home, shower up, go to the meeting, go home, go to bed. I didn't have a lot of time for hanky-panky after the meeting. This job gave me some self-worth. Now, for the first time in years, I felt like a man among men. Paul also put me to work in AA. My first job in AA was to set up and tear down the Judson Street meeting and make the coffee. I loved my service position until Paul put on another newcomer with me, and this guy didn't do it right, and I got my first <laughs> AA resentment. Paul took me on 12-step calls immediately. I didn't have to have six months or a year to go on a 12-step call. Paul would just come and get me, and we'd go. Paul was a house painter. He drove a dilapidated old vehicle on a roof with these aluminum ladders and paint buckets hanging off the side and canvas in the back. We'd go roaring down the street in this old jalopy. Paul would pull up in front of the victim's house. He'd park the car, flip the dome light on. He'd read a couple paragraphs out of chapter 7, working with others. Then we'd bow our heads. He'd say a prayer. Then we'd go into the victim's house. On our way up the steps, Paul would turn to me and he'd say, I want you to keep your mouth shut and let me do the talking. So I learned at the feet of the Master. For the first time in my life, I got to witness alcoholism as a spectator rather than as a participant. And I was appalled. I could not believe people behaved the way they did when they were drinking. <laughs> Yet I was getting a mirror image of myself, and it was a real eye-opener. You know, Paul would be pitching a drunk on the steps, the tradition, the big book, and the meetings. And Paul would say to the drunk, he'd say, if you keep on drinking, he says, you're going to end up like this guy. And he'd point over to me, standing over in the corner there, shaking and quaking with my teeth rotted out. I helped a lot of people that first year. <laughs> Paul took me through the steps, 1 through 12 in order. And I'm not going to bore you with a dissertation on the 12 steps. Suffice to say that when we got to the restitution steps, 8 and 9, Paul had his work cut out for him because I'd been a thief. I didn't think I was a thief. It's just that the last job I had drinking, well, I'd been a maintenance man in a shopping mall, and they didn't pay me enough, or so I thought. So I took a few items. I mean, I had jackhammers, carpeting, typewriters, electric drills, <laughs> tools of all caliber. Actually, whatever I needed, I took. I didn't look at it as robbery. I looked at it as pay equity. <laughs> kind of like a 401k plan. And Paul says, you'll have to return that stuff. I said, Paul, I'll go to jail. He said, how bad do you want to stay sober? So the following Saturday, I loaded my car up with all this stolen merchandise and headed back to where I'd been fired for drinking. And I don't want to sound noble here. I brought my kids with me. I had three little kids. <laughs> they were cute. They had blonde hair, dark eyes. One of them was in diapers. I figured, hell, I'll never arrest a guy with such cute kids. And he didn't. As a result of doing a thorough eighth and ninth step, I was able to gradually be reunited with a family that had totally disowned me, and to the extent that we became good friends. When my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer, we were able to take him into our home and care for him. 
You know, my father died in our back bedroom, surrounded by his wife, his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. What a privilege that was. When I was 47 years old, my oldest daughter, Brianna, who was a student at the University of Nebraska, came home for lunch one day. I got to peeking at her textbooks. I realized that I understood some of the content, and I told her so. And she said, Dad, why don't you come down on the campus and sign up for some classes? I said, I, I can't do that. I'm too old. She said, oh, nonsense. She says, there's a lot of old people on the campus. <laughs> <laughs> they call them non-traditional students. Next thing you know, I'm down there standing in line. She's showing me how to buy books and get a parking permit. Seven years later, at the age of 54, I graduated magna cum laude with a bachelor's degree in public administration. <laughs> One of the proudest days of my life. 1987, my wife was serving the Allen on family groups as their delegate to New York. I got to meet and talk to Lois Wilson, the wife of our co-founder, Bill. It was a two-and-a-half-minute conversation that changed my life forever. In 1987, Lois was in failing health and very frail. They had her sitting on a couch at Stepping Stones. At her feet was a three-legged stool where you were expected to sit. That way she wouldn't have to adjust her posture to accommodate you. I remember sitting on that stool and reaching up to shake this dear lady's hand and looking in her eyes and seeing the face of God. I said, Lois, my name is Mark Richwine and I'm an alcoholic. I just want to thank you and your husband, Bill, for saving our lives. And before I could say anything more profound than that, I started to cry. And I wept and wept. And finally, Lois reached over and patted me on the head and said, My, my, aren't you the emotional one? <laughs> Then she said something I'll never forget. She says, Mark, I want you to go back to Lincoln, Nebraska and pass it on. Folks, I've tried to do that. For the last 25 years, I've been involved in one form of service or another. A few years ago, our area elected me as their delegate to go to New York, and I'd like to stand here and tell you I did that job with grace and dignity, but that wouldn't be the truth. You see, I have a slight ego problem. <laughs> I always felt that local service was rather provincial that we spent far too much time embroiled in controversy, pettiness, infighting, and politicking. Now that I was in New York, that was all behind me. From now on out, I'd be surrounded by mature, sensible, level-headed alcoholics, and <laughs> we could get something meaningful done. Boy, was I wrong. What I fail to understand is that the General Service Conference is comprised of 132 of the largest eagles in all of AA, mine included. <laughs> it was an intense two years. But I merged on the other side of that experience with a whole fresh approach to our program. I now know that our general service office in New York is important, but it's not the be-all, end-all that I thought it was. Of far more importance are our local service entities, you know, our intergroups, our districts, and our areas. Because without intergroups, districts, and areas, there can be no general service office. The most vital work of all in AA is done locally, on the vomit line, one alcoholic relating to another. GSO is a clearinghouse of information, and that's it. I think the staff there would be the first to acknowledge that. In 1995, my wife and I traveled to Edinburgh, Scotland, to visit our youngest daughter, Bridget, who was a foreign exchange student at the time. We went at Christmas, and we had a ball. Went to Edinburgh Castle and down to Royal Mile to Holyrood. We went shopping on Prince Street, and we visited the Scottish museums. The second day, we crossed the Firth of Forth, and we went to St. Andrews, where the game of golf originated. And that was like a holy pilgrimage for me. We came back around through Linlithgow, and on Christmas Eve, we went to midnight services at one of the ancient medieval cathedrals there in Edinburgh. It was a very spiritual and moving experience. I woke up Christmas morning restless, irritable, and discontent, as I should have been, as I should have been. 
I hadn't been to a meeting in three or four days. I'd been too busy being a tourist. So we set out to rectify that. Finding a meeting in Edinburgh, Scotland on Christmas Day is no easy task. Now, the meetings over there are held in churches, and the churches were all in use for the holidays. But I did manage to find a group. And when I told my wife, she started to laugh. It was in the local insane asylum. <laughs> I said, don't laugh too hard, lady. I said, it's an open meeting. You're going with me. <laughs> so that evening, my wife, my daughter, and myself, we showed up at the front entrance to this mental hospital. The attendant, he unlocked the door and let us in. And we went down a passageway through another locked door, down another passageway through another door, and onto the day room of a mental ward. I recognized it immediately. <laughs> I'd been there a hundred times before. I'd been there in Philadelphia and Coatesville. I'd been there in Topeka. I'd been there in Omaha. I'd been there in Lincoln and Hastings. There on the left-hand side of the room, there they were, the student body, the patients. I knew them well. I mean, they had accents and funny names like McDonald and McDuff, but I knew them. On the right-hand side of the room, there was the institutions committee. I recognized those guys immediately, too. They were the ones with the neckties on. And I went over and introduced myself, told them I was an alcoholic from the States as if they couldn't figure that out. <laughs> the leader of the group came over and says, Tell me, laddie, how many, how many years of sobriety have you got? I said, 18. He said, Oh, it is a good thing, he said, because he said, This is a speaker meeting, and you're the speaker. <laughs> <laughs> so on December 25th, 1995, in Edinburgh, Scotland, I shared my experience, strength, and hope with the patients and staff at the Royal Edinburgh Psychiatric Hospital. <laughs> It hasn't all been peaches and cream. Now, after my father's death, my mother returned to Kansas, where she lived uneventually for a couple of years. One afternoon, we got a phone call from one of her neighbors saying that her house had burned. Luckily, my mother wasn't in it at the time, and luckily, they were able to save most of her furniture. I was faced with a dilemma of what to do with my mother. Once again, my AA friends came to my rescue. We formed a work party. And on a Sunday afternoon, we carpooled 90 miles south into Kansas, loaded my mother and her possessions up, and moved her to Lincoln, Nebraska. That was not an AA quest. Those people had better things to do on a Sunday afternoon. They could have been spending quality time with their own families. That was just plain good. My mother is currently living at the Holmes Lake Manor Nursing Home in Lincoln, Nebraska. We had to put her there about three years ago last April. That was a difficult decision, but one that had to be made. My mother could no longer look after herself. My mother's almost 93 years old. She's had three strokes. She has Parkinson's disease and senile dementia. The worst part is the senile dementia because it's a lot like alcoholism. My mother can be unreasonable, argumentative, and obnoxious. And I'm sensitive. I take it all wrong. I have to go to my big book. Page 67 is dog-eared. It says we avoid retaliation or argument. If a person offends us, we say, this is a sick person. You know, how can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. God save me from being angry. There's something you used to hear in AA and you don't hear much anymore, and that's the farther you are from the last drink, the closer you are to the next drink. I used to hear that, and I think, how can that be? I mean, how can that be? Isn't this like everything else in life, where the more experience you get, the less you have to do? Isn't this like college, where after so many years you graduate? Or isn't it like an athletic event where you cross the finish line? The answer to that's an unequivocal no. Alcoholism is unlike any disease in that it tells its victims, you don't have it. People with multiple years of sobriety are actually more at risk than the newcomer because they lack the desperation. Intellectually, I can remember my last drink. Emotionally, I can't feel a pain. It's been almost 26 years for me. So, 
For me to reinforce who I am and what I am, I have to constantly surround myself with new people. Right now, my life's real good. You know, my kids are all raised. It's just me and Mama. The mortgage is paid off. I play golf two or three days a week if I want. I don't have any problems. What do I need AA for? The truth of the matter is, that can all turn on a dime. People get sick. People die. Businesses fail. Economies flounder. Shit happens. Our book talks about it. It says, a time will come in the life of every alcoholic when one thing standing between him and that first drink is a fit spiritual condition. So how do you remain spiritually fit? You remain spiritually fit the same way you remain physically fit, by working out. Athletes have known this for years. A good athlete will train year-round. A prize fighter wouldn't step in a ring after having trained one day. He'd get clobbered. So I have to train every day, too. I do that by going to the meetings, taking the steps, calling a sponsor, and working with new people. I was going to stop the talk at this point, and I am in about 10 seconds here, but I was really excited over the sponsorship workshop this morning. You know, I got to thinking about this as I was coming over here to talk. Uh, there's been a role reversal in my life. Today I uh, sponsor five guys. I've sponsored as many as 15 and as few as two. This isn't about numbers here. It's about what it says at the beginning of Chapter 7 in our big book in working with others. And I quote, Nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. That is a sweeping statement. What that says to me is I can immunize myself against drinking. I don't need a vaccination. I don't need a shot. What I do need to do is some intensive work with another alcoholic. I do believe they're talking about sponsorship there. How many times I've been sitting home in a doldrums the world's crashing down around me. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm on the edge and the phone rings. It's some boo by sponsor. And he's got a problem. Would I give it a listen? You bet. For five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour, an hour. When I hang up the phone, I seem to misplace my problem. It never failed. Sunday nights, I go out to the Nebraska State Penitentiary, out to the Iron Bar Group. I have for a number of years. At 7 o'clock, we join hands, bow our heads, and say the serenity prayer. I head for the exit. When those steel doors clang shut behind me, I get a surge of gratitude every time because there but for the grace of God go I. When I got here, I was completely devoid of spirituality. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. We went to church on Sundays and sang, Jesus loves me. I believed it. As I got older, I got an inquiring mind. When I was 17, I entered a university for the first time. One of the courses I took was an introductory course in philosophy. Philosophy 101. I learned just enough philosophy to be a danger to myself and those around me. <laughs> I remember I went home at Christmas time and I announced to my horrified family that I was now an atheist. I was no more an atheist than a man on the moon. But it was fashionable. It was chic. It made me different then. It set me apart from. It was an attention getter. In reality, when I was alone or afraid, I believed in God. When I was in trouble or in jail, I believed in God. I mean, what, what's the old saying? There's no atheists in foxholes. The next 20 years was a spiritual quest for me. I tried everything. I studied Eastern forms of meditation. I'd hunker down a lotus position. I'd inhale through my left nostril and I'd contemplate my navel. All to no avail. I tried different religious disciplines. I got involved with Billy Graham's crusades and I'd go to those Billy Graham revival meetings. They'd play just as I am and ask for sinners to come down on the field and get saved. I'd be leading the pack. Now, I've been saved more times than I've been lost. 
I was looking for a higher power to give me a buzz the way alcohol did. That usually doesn't happen. Toward the end of my drinking, I started going to flop houses, city missions, Salvation Armies, that type of place. Our first home in Nebraska was the city mission. The term city mission is a misnomer. The city has nothing to do with those places. They're supported by private charities, usually, sometimes religious organizations. And those places have one thing in common. You got to li listen to the endless sermon on the state of your eternal soul. There's usually some evangelical type there wagging his finger in your face, threatening you with hell for your sins. I don't know about you guys. My sins are many. I came in here with a lot of baggage. I have an already overinflated sense of guilt. I don't need some buffoon reinforcing that sense of guilt. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't call them sins. We have a more genteel term. We call them defects of character, or better yet, shortcomings. Then the ultimate degradation, the ultimate humiliation, and that's having to sing for your supper. Oh, yeah. Picture, if you will, six transients standing in front of these wooden benches singing honored Christian soldiers at the top of their lungs. It brings a tear to my eye. To this day, when I hear church music, I, I get hungry and I salivate like Pavlov's dogs because <laughs> I know there's a meal just around the corner. If it sounds like I was cynical when I got here, you bet I was. But I belonged to a successful group, and it was successful because people were coming to the group, they were getting sober, and they were staying sober. And I thought, well, this group must have some power. So the group became my first higher power. The group was my springboard into spirituality. Then I was assigned a tyrant as a sponsor, and this tyrant made me do things I didn't want to do. He made me take actions I didn't believe in, but I was afraid of the man. He intimidated me into taking those actions, and lo and behold, I started to get better. I started to act better, feel better, sound better, smell better. I thought, well, the sponsor must have some power. See, I narrowed my focus from the group down to one other individual, and he became a higher power. He became a god with skin on him. And I don't mean any disrespect or any irreverence by that statement. It's just for some of us, we need to believe in something tangible before we can believe in something in the abstract. And his sponsor made me, he made me get on my knees in the morning and ask God to keep me sober. And he made me get on my knees again in the evening and thank God for having kept me sober. And I felt compelled to inform this Cretan I didn't believe in that hocus-pocus stuff. He says, I don't care, do it anyway. So like everything else in life I was doing, I did it anyway. I don't know when it happened. I was probably six months sober, maybe a year sober. I'm down there on my knees one morning. Suddenly I realized I believed in what I was saying. But more importantly, I believed in who I was saying it to. So like the step says, I came to believe. If you're new to A tonight, and many of you are, my sincerest wish for you is that you find a loving God of your understanding that will help restore you to sanity. May God bless you.